0: Hello, beloved OnBeing listeners and friends. Many of you are asking how you can help support the work we're doing at the OnBeing Project. If we're fortunate enough to make it onto your list for giving this year, you can absolutely visit onbeing.org give. Your generosity of every kind is gratefully received. Thank you for being with us on this adventure. Support for OnBeing with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute helping build the spiritual
1: foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred
0: relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with the great Christian teacher of the prophetic imagination, Walter Brueggemann there is a shorter produced version of this wherever podcasts are found.
1: The car was, that was supposed to pick me up
0: mm-hmm.
1: went off with some other passenger, so then they had to mobilize another car That's or so something. Funny. so
0: funny. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that.
1: <laughs> well, I guess if you, uh, if you travel enough, it's going to happen, so...
0: <laughs> you know, I, uh, I didn't meet you, but I saw you years ago It. Do you remember, uh, do you know that preaching conference that they, who is it, the Episcopal, EES, uh, Ex- Preaching Excellence Conference? Yes. Do they, they yep. still do that yep. in the summertime?
1: Yep. yep, yep, right.
0: So when I was at YDS, I got invited to do that, and it would have been like, the, Like, uh, I was pregnant with my daughter, so it was like mm. 92 or something, mm. 93, 93, yep. and you were there. Mm-hmm. It was in St. Louis. Yep, yep. Is that where Eden is? Yes,
1: that's right. Okay. Yep, yep right.
0: And yep. also that amazing woman, Peggy, what was her name? Peggy Way? I think in so. In
1: Care? It's the only Peggy I know in the field. I, I don't know.
0: know if Peggy's the right name. I
1: don't know. Do
0: you remember who else spoke with you? Someone mm-hmm. else from Eden? No, I don't. Was she in a wheelchair?
1: Yep, yep. That would have been she. Okay. Yep, yep.
0: Um, so, yeah, so I, I soaked you up then and...
1: And, uh, I mean,
0: I I read you, of course, too, but uh, one thing, um, you know, even my colleagues who haven't gone to seminary, when your name came up, when we realized you'd be in town, Trent, I think, especially said, uh, your name comes up. People quote you Mm. as often as anyone else gets quoted. Mm. Your name gets dropped a lot. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) if you appreciate that. So (laughs) we thought, well, we can get the real thing here. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, Oh, and you got your Bible. Well, should we just go? or chris yes okay all right let's just do it um do you have any questions of me before we start
1: no i'll okay. follow you all right
0: yeah. um i take off this loud bracelet so where i start with everyone is um i just like to hear a little bit about the religious background of your childhood
1: yep uh, i'm the son of a uh, a pastor my father was um a German evangelical pastor in uh, rural Missouri and I grew up in um, very much a church culture uh, and uh, I think that shaped me that shaped me uh, not only as a believer but it shaped me toward ministry
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, that was that's the flow of my life then and uh, that was an antecedent of the United Church of Christ so that's my home denomination and uh, mm-hmm has been all my life. Yep.
0: I read somewhere that you remembered the conflict when your father urged his congregation to abandon German. Oh, yes. So it was a German-speaking congregation? Yeah, well, uh, the,
1: that that crisis really came in the Second World War when uh, you didn't want to speak okay. German anymore. But my so father, it wasn't a
0: theological decision? Or, or yeah. it was.
1: <laughs> but it's like every immigrant community. The, the older people really thought that... Uh, true theological talk could only happen in your mother tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, my father then preached once a month in German into the 1950s because the old people needed to hear those sounds. Mm. And uh, his insistence was, if you, don't, if you don't move away from that, you will, like every immigrant community, lose the next generation. Uh, so uh, he had some tough nuts to crack about that.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> did he speak? Did you speak German at home?
1: No. See, uh, the years when I should have learned it at home were the years when you didn't want to talk I see. German. Uh-huh. But both my parents from childhood were bilingual, mm-hmm. and that's when I should have learned it as an Old Testament teacher. Right, uh, right. So I've been trying to learn it all my adult life instead of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah.
0: It's funny, with German, I... Um, I spent most of my 20s, most of the 80s in Germany, in Berlin. Was not religious. I was a completely political person. I was a journalist. I was with the State Department. Then when a couple years later I ended up going to seminary, which is not something I would ever have imagined in those political years, reading and speaking German was a huge advantage. Of course it was. I could go to the library and get all these great texts and read them in the language. Um,
1: Well, and until maybe even 20, 25 years ago... The important stuff was still in German. Mm. That's, oh, that's changed it? now, but uh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So. It, I don't. This may be a stretch, but when I read that story, it it, it made me wonder if, um, if that that struggle over language, uh, it, you know, if had anything to do with your later concern about, you know, the particularities of language of the biblical text, the the preaching voice, the church, and the world. Yeah. Did all of that
1: form you? I think I have never thought of it that way, but but I'm sure it does. Uh, uh, how one moves from language to language, and I really think that uh, Richard and Ronald Niebuhr, in in whose uh, tradition I stand, one of the things that made them great is that they could move back and forth between those languages and between those cultures, mm-hmm. and uh, so I I think that particularity has been. Uh, very important to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
0: Do you remember when um, the biblical prophets first entered your imagination? Was that something about the, the biblical text that was interesting? Well, my, to you?
1: I, I think my father um, probably uh, attended to that some because he was on the right side of all the justice questions. But I don't think I really computed that till I was in seminary. Uh, but I had great Old Testament teachers in seminary, and uh, that that really was uh, made clear and inescapable then.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I mean, so your book, The Prophetic Imagination, is re- continues to be such an important book. And I, I think
1: it's probably it's my fallback uh, position. And sometimes I look at it now, and I think, uh, either, gee, I already saw that then. Or I think, wow, I haven't moved at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, right. I mean, there is a sense in which everything you've done since then builds on That's that. Right. And it, flows it from it. Yep. Um, yep. But so I, I guess I'm still kind of curious. Of what, so, you know, how did you get captured by that, the prophetic imagination in particular in, in this text? Well, uh, my,
1: my uh, teacher in my uh, doctoral work was James Meilenberg, and Jeremiah was his thing. Mm. And he's the one... Um, that really taught me to pay attention to the nuance of the language. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and if you, if you just keep looking at these same texts every day of your life, year after year, you, you either give up on it mm-hmm. or you get taken in by it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the force of their language is just kind of inexhaustible and, uh, So I would always tell my students as we were studying the prophets, uh, this stuff sounds like it was written yesterday
0: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, because the the contemporaneity of it is uh, so immediate. And
0: uh, And that was something that captured you about the prophets. It did indeed, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, um, most people don't have theological education. Most Christians don't have theological education. Most Christians... um, Aren't even necessary. Don't even necessarily have really basic tools for right. reading those texts yep. in a powerful and nuanced way. So, if I ask you, kind of the the introductory question, I ask you to be a teacher. You know, if you had to say, what who 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 were the prophets? You know, what, what were they about, and what's particular about that piece of the Bible?
1: Well, I think they were um, the, the two things that are important. It seems to me, as on the one hand. Um, They were rooted in the covenantal traditions of whatever was from Moses and Sinai and all of that. And the other thing is that they are completely um, uncredentialed and without pedigree. Okay. So they just rise up uh, in the landscape. And um, um, the way I put it now is that they imagine their contemporary world differently according to that old tradition. So it's, uh, it's tradition and imagination. Uh, and uh, there's no way to explain that, so we explain it by the work of the spirit, uh, but I don't think you have to say that. I, I just think they are moved the way every good poet is moved uh, to have to describe the world differently according to the gifts of their insight. Hmm. And, uh, and, and, of course, in their own time and every time since, uh, the, the people that, that control the power structure uh, do not know what to make of them, uh, so they characteristically try to silence them. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and, and what, what power people always discover is that you cannot finally silence poets they just keep coming at you and, uh, <laughs> in threatening and, um, mm. and transformative ways. Mm. You know.
0: So you have your Bible with you. And I mean, if I asked you just to read what for you is a... I mean, I, I, so I, I want to also step back and say there are a number of prophets, right? And they have very different characteristics, voices, themes. Uh, they were speaking to different times. In the history of the Israelites So there's not one prophet or one prophetic voice But if I just ask you to choose Kind of a quintessential uh, passage Maybe Jeremiah, maybe Isaiah uh, Or or maybe just one that that has remained Especially meaningful to you over the years And just kind of let's Well, I'll uh,
1: I'll read uh, Since the prophets characteristically revolve around judgment and hope uh, I'll do two passages One of each of them the the uh, the uh, judgment passage uh, that I'll uh, read is in Jeremiah 4 um, uh, it goes like this um, I looked and you don't know who I is I looked on the earth and lo it was waste and void and to the heavens and they had no light I looked on the mountains, and lo, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and lo, there was no one at all, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid waste before the anger, before his fierce anger. Well, you get the I looked, I looked, I looked, and what that text really is, is creation in reversal. Hmm. Uh, So you go from heaven and earth to mountains, to birds, to humans. Mm. And he's describing it all being taken away at one time. And um, when I when I hear that kind of poetry, I get chill bumps about, uh, be- because it, it seems to me so contemporary that I think that's how very many people are now experiencing the world. It is as though the ordered world uh, is being taken away from us. Mm. and. Um, mm is just so powerful and exquisite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other text I'll read is one uh, made famous by uh, Gerhard von Rod, the great uh, 20th century one.
0: One of those uh, German theologians. That's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but this, this is uh, Isaiah uh, 43. It's a very much-used uh, passage. Uh, uh, Do not remember the former things nor the consider the things of old I am about to do a new thing, now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? And apparently what he's, what he's telling his people is just forget about the exodus, forget about all the ancient miracles and pay attention to the new miracles of mm. rebirth and new creation that God is enacting before your very eyes. Mm. Mm. And uh, I, I often wonder when I read that, what was it like the day the poet... Got those words, and wh- what it, what did it feel like, and how did he share that? And of course, we don't know any of that, um, so it just uh, it just keeps ringing in our ears.
0: Mm. Yeah. It, you and I were together this morning at a gathering of uh, preachers, and um, I, I, I think that that both of those themes that you named of you know what feels like chaos. Yep. But then the hope that, and I think, I think even an insistence that this must somehow give rise to new forms. Yep. The fact that we don't know how the world is going to be structured differently or right. you know, what will survive that we recognize makes it still stressful even if it's hopeful. But
1: That's right. But, but the amazing uh, contemporaneity of this material mm-hmm. is that the issues are the same. Uh, that that the world we have trusted in is vanishing before our eyes and the world that is coming at us uh feels like a threat to us and we can't quite see the shape of it and um and I think that is kind of where the the church and the preachers of the church uh have to live uh and uh People don't much want to hear either one of those words, that the world is vanishing or that a new world is coming to us, Mm -hmm. which is why this this kind of poetry always uh, leaves us uneasy, I think. Mm
0: -hmm. But I think that you also think that that unease is a holy thing, or can be a holy thing, that in fact the Bible— calls the faithful not to be too settled and well, too I think comfortable. That, I, think,
1: I think that's exactly right. Um, that's
0: countercultural, though.
1: It is countercultural because our, our consumer culture wants somehow to uh, narcoticize us so that we just settle in on things. And I think, uh, I, I think Kafka maybe said that a, that a poet or a novelist is like a pickaxe. Uh, that attacks the way we've got things arranged, and I think these poems are like uh, pickaxes that are that are not welcome among us um but but we're gonna we're gonna miss out on the reality of our life uh, if we are not if we are narcoticized uh, both about the loss and about the newness
0: you know here's um here's here's some words from from the prophetic imagination, your book in set 1978. Uh, they're very poetic, too. Our consumer culture, following on what you just said, our consumer culture is organized against history. There is a deprecation of memory and a ridicule of hope, which means everything must be held in the now, either an urgent now or an eternal now.
1: Well, I'm glad I said
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, you're naming something. When you call the prophets poets, yep. um, you're naming qu- qualities uh, of the this this text, this Bible that people think they know so well, but yep. in fact, and partly because of the way these things were translated and transmitted, yeah, yep. uh, I, I don't think I grew up r- realizing how much po- how much of the Bible is poetry. That's right. And the the other thing that you the reason that also matters, and that's especially that's true of the Hebrew Bible in particular, and 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 also this realization, which is very simple but not brought home often, it, it, very often, is that this was this was the text of Jesus. This was his that's scripture. Right.
1: That's right, and he he obviously knew it so well. But even even in the, the the more liberal theological tradition in which I was raised, we only talked about the prophets as moral teachers, mm-hmm. and there was no attention to the. Artistic, aesthetic quality of how they did that, but it is the only way in which you can think outside of the box. Uh, Otherwise, even liberal passion for justice just becomes another ideology Mm. and it does not have transformative power. That's what's extraordinary about the poetry, uh, that it's so uh, elusive that it doesn't, it refuses to be. Reduced to a formula. Okay. And uh, I think that's a great temptation uh, among liberals who care about justice is to reduce it to a formula. And to then create the, another the, ism. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then the poetry comes and breaks that open mm, again.
0: That's really interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah, right.
0: That's that power of language and, and forms right. of language.
1: That's right. Yep.
0: You know, so one thing I thought might be interesting is... Um, to To walk through some of the words that um, that are there in your writing that come from these prophetic texts right. um, that are not words in, that are really part of a modern vocabulary. Uh, you know, one of them is uh, lamentations.
1: Yeah.
0: You know what? Tell me about well, lamentations. Well, uh, uh,
1: lamentation is a is a big piece of my research and my passion. Um, the, the Book of Lamentations uh, is a collection of poems that grieve the loss of Jerusalem that's been destroyed. But the Book of Psalms, at least one-third of the Book of Psalms, are uh, songs or prayers of sadness and loss and grief and upset uh, so that uh, very much the Old Testament experience of faith uh, is having stuff taken away from us. And what's so interesting is that in the institutional church, with the lectionary and the liturgies, the whole business of lamentations has been screened out. Hmm. Uh, because oh, I think in, because we don't
0: know what to do with those depressing passages. <laughs> yeah, and we
1: don't want to uh-huh. because of consumer capitalism. You just go from triumph to triumph to well-being to ease to prosperity— and uh, you never have any brokenness. My, uh, m- my way of teaching that is to say that, that the destruction of Jerusalem is the Old Testament equivalent to 9 11. That's their 9 11.
0: You know, I just remembered that in the days after 9 11, I interviewed a bunch of people, including, and I can't even remember who this was, but some pastor, theologian, biblical scholar who read. That first line of lamentations, how yep. lonely sits the city
1: yeah yeah it, it just it just fits so well mm-hmm. and because we have neglected the lament pieces, we are ill-equipped uh, for the loss that we are facing in our society mm. so we keep pretending and denying uh, that that's not happening to us mm. I think. Yeah.
0: yeah I felt like one of the spiritual experiences of nine eleven. not that we maybe knew how to name this, that's what you're talking about, right. was Americans experienced vulnerability in their strongest fortresses, which is an experience that a lot of people in the world have a lot of the time, but it was completely new to us. That's right. In this generation. That's
1: right. And I think particularly for young people who didn't even have uh, the Second World War behind them as my generation right, does? Right. Uh, we just we just thought it could not happen here, mm-hmm. but that's exactly what they thought in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. They thought we are God's guaranteed people, and it can't happen here. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what produced this incredible poetry, I think. Mm. And uh, yeah.
0: Right. So another term. Is uh, that 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 arises in your writing that that echoes the biblical text is steadfast love, mm-hmm. not just love, but steadfast <laughs> right. love. So That's tell right. me about the combination of yeah. those two words.
1: Well, uh, as you, uh, it, the the two words together are a translation of the Hebrew word chesed. and I think in the King James uh, Bible they are translated loving kindness. Okay. and um, uh, both are ways of translating that tend to be kind of sweet and romantic. Uh, but I think it really means uh, uh, covenantal covenantal reliability. okay uh, It's okay to say love as as long as you don't uh, sweeten it or make it romantic but but I think the best image of it is is the 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 capacity of a dog uh, to get prey by the throat and just hold on to it. that's that's the kind of love <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that God is said to practice and is the kind of love. Um, that Israel in covenant is expected to practice toward the neighbor. Hmm. Uh, and, and so the, the lament psalms in the book of Psalms, uh, to some extent, are an argument with God that God has not kept steadfast love as God promised to do. So then you get that argument. But that but essentially that's what all of our intimate arguments are about is always the other party who has not kept steadfast love with us according to our mutual commitments and mm.
0: so on. Mm. So
1: yeah.
0: It's like the love of a long marriage rather than something you fall into and fall out that's of. That's
1: right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right.
0: Um, a word you've used a lot recently maybe you always used it i think it echoes in what you wrote it but is disruptive
1: yeah well, that's 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 more recent in okay my, well tell me about very, that evolution. my very limited vocabulary yeah.
0: tell me about that word um, uh, again i don't think that's a word we associate in american culture with religion or the bible or churches yeah
1: well i i think uh, we think in terms of uh, systems and continuities And predictability and schemes and plans, and uh, uh, I think uh, the Bible is, to some great extent, focused on God's capacity uh, to break those schemes open and to violate those formulae. When they are positive disruptions, the Bible calls them miracles. We we tend not to use that word. Uh, when they are negative, right? Uh, but but what it means is that that uh, the the reality of our life and the reality of God are not contained in most of our explanatory schemes. And whether one wants to explain uh, that in terms of God or not, it is nonetheless the truth of our life uh, that our lives are uh, arenas. For all kinds of disruptions, right. because it doesn 't work out the way we planned mm-hmm. and I, and I think uh, our our recent economic collapse mm-hmm. uh, is a huge disruption for many people who had their retirement mapped out or or whatever like that, and it isn 't going to be like that and, and and what what the Bible pretty consistently does is to refer all of those disruptions. Uh, to the hidden power of God.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that, does that satisfy modern people to, to think of it that way? How do you know, what, what kind of God is that? Well, I think that's... If, you,
1: if, you, if you use the word modern mm-hmm. uh, to refer to the 18th, 19th century rationality that we can think it all through, mm-hmm. then of course it doesn't fit with that. Uh, but that's but that's very much like the situation uh, in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had all worked out, and uh, Jesus became a great disruptive force, who finally had to be executed because the empire can never tolerate that kind of disruption. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose that that you could say uh, uh, in in. Uh, Our contemporary experience of the the end of apartheid in South Africa or even these uh, incredible street movements in uh, in uh, Mideast countries now Mm -hmm. those are incredible disruptions um, that establishment power uh, doesn't know what to deal with And, and what what establishment power always learns too late is that there are not enough guns and there are not enough dogs and there's not enough armaments finally to stop uh, that disruptive force. Uh, so we're watching that played out again in uh, in some of those countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the the connection uh, that the Bible makes between lived disruption and the reference to God really uh, fuels a great deal of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um. You know, I heard you speak very poignantly this morning to preachers about um, the fact that there are things that can't be said from the pulpit. Sometimes that it feels like they should be said. You said there are silences that it's hard to break. Yeah. Um, that 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 following on the way we're talking about this, it's hard for. Preachers, religious leaders, to adopt this prophetic voice or draw on these prophetic themes. Yep. And you know, I think even when if you and I talk about this, it's gonna it's kind of a difficult conversation to have in this culture.
1: Uh, it's a very difficult, right? And I, and I think the difficulty is uh, that all of us, liberals and conservatives, all of us are basically contained in the ideology. Of consumer capitalism. And we want that to be our universe of meaning. And when you get a poetic articulation that moves outside of that, it's just too anxiety producing for most of us. So we try to stop that kind of talk. And and in a local church, obviously, uh, people have a lot of leverage for being able to stop that kind of talk.
0: So what is it hard for preachers to talk about here? What, what?
1: Well, I th- I think um, at at the broadest level, it is hard to talk about the fact. I think it's a fact uh, that our society has chosen a path of death, in which we have um, reduced everything to a commodity. We believe that there are. Uh, technical solutions to everything we believe that we are uh, entitled to a disproportionate amount of the world's goods and resources and and so on Uh, and um, um, that's all phoniness but we don't want that exposed as a phoniness so it doesn't matter whether you talk about the the um, over reliance on technology the mad pursuit of commodity goods, uh, our passion for violence now expressed as our war policies, all of those are interrelated to each other, and none of us, uh, very few of us, none of us uh, really want to have that exposed as an inadequate and dehumanizing way to live. And I think if one is... Uh, grounded in the truth of the gospel, as a Christian, um, that's what we have to talk about. Uh, so preachers are really put in a in a in a very difficult fix of having been entrusted to talk about that stuff.
0: Yeah, but they also and they also belong to this. That's culture, right. Preach- and the, these we 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 get you know these. These characteristics are part of our birthright.
1: That's right. They are. This is the world
0: we're born into. That's right.
1: And preachers are as deep—we are as deeply implicated in it as anyone else. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep.
0: Um, You you, also—you named uh, the Iraq War.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: That that was a hard thing to talk about in the pulpit. Yep. Without— being really contra- it being you know controversial and inflammatory that one was speaking about this in a critical way. Right. But that you think that that is the kind of thing that the preachers must be naming.
1: I th- I think that's wrestling right. wrestling with in whatever. Uh, I, way. I think that's right and and when you do that of course it it comes through to some people as simply liberal cant mm-hmm. and not really uh, the voice of the gospel. Uh, Because it's not only tied up with our military ideology, but it's all tied up for specific families who have sons and daughters in the service, and it sounds like a repudiation Mm -hmm. of them. So it gets to be a very complex uh, issue, uh, but we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it so that that sort of stuff doesn't become uh, commonplace and assumed as normal among us. It's quite abnormal uh, to be committed uh, to that way in the world
0: you know, I think that this larger point that that you've been making about the aesthetic literary poetic sensibility of of the prophetic tradition that that the very language is different and transformative um, that it 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 takes that voice out of political boxes yeah. because um. I'm really aware that uh, a lot of words that religious people treasure and that are core, I mean, the word justice, the word peace, these words themselves... Are, are tarnished in our culture. That's they right. they have all kinds of political association and baggage, right? I mean, that's right. They, they're liberal or they're conservative yep. or they belong to some agenda. That's right. And and I think that's also a problem when preachers start talking about those things. That's right. Um, all of that acc- 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 accumulates around that's it. That's right. The message is not clear and the message may not be powerful and it may not be heard.
1: That's right. w- w- which is why a poetic preacher always has to try to find another way to say it. I've, I've recently been thinking more and more, it's so astonishing that the Old Testament prophets hardly ever discuss an issue. Uh, they don't discuss abortion do mean, or, issue.
0: The okay. Canal
1: <laughs> or the Canal or, yeah. or anything like that. And I, and I think what they're doing is they're going underneath the issues that preoccupy people to the more foundational assumptions that can only be gotten at in elusive language. Mm. And very much the, the institutional church has been preoccupied with issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Which automatically puts you on one side of an issue or correct. on the other side and, of the
1: and, issue. And when, and when we do that, uh, we are robbed of transformative power because then we just, it's ideology versus ideology mm-hmm. uh, that, that that does not produce very good outcomes for anyone.
0: Can you think of an example where you've seen... Uh, a, a religious leader or a community kind of subvert that I mean get, get, get outside that issues based or
1: Well, I think Martin Luther King did sometimes mm-hmm. um, you know I, I think at his at his best, he was a biblical poet right If you, if right. you just right. think of "I have a dream," right. Which it, is a it line just of... kind of mm-hmm. soared away he, he wasn't really talking about enacting a civil rights bill, except mm-hmm. that he was and you know but but it was it was language that was out beyond uh, the corals that we do mm-hmm. and uh i i think that happens from time to time like that
0: mm-hmm. i mean you make the connection there's something else uh I I really enjoyed reading some of your sermons. Uh, You have a new book, a new collection of Mm -hmm. sermons, right? So I have the galleys of that. Oh, do you? Yeah, and I I loved that. Well, I didn't correct it for (laughs) you. Sorry. Um, But this, I think, was from one of your sermons. Uh, You were talking about the need for a city to care about injustice or poverty and despair is not liberalism or socialism or welfare or radicalism. I mean, after all, liberals and conservatives share those same biblical texts, right? right? But you said it is simply genuine humanness authorized by the God of the Bible. But even drawing that, circling back to that connection...
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: ...then kind of reframes, well, what's at stake here?
1: And I think very much it it is... It's so hard to do... But the task is reframing, so that we can re-experience the social realities that are right in front of us Mm -hmm. from a different angle. I think that's right. Mm. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so, uh, you know, something else that comes up in my mind: uh, you were you were introduced um, as someone who's strident, said proudly strident, (laughs) and the prophets were strident, right? They were uncomfortable. That's right. I think also I've thought about this a lot because we do, you know, I've done a lot of conversations across the years about uh, some historic figures. I mean, people who changed the world usually yeah. were not. Po- they often started in their twenties and before everyone realized they'd changed the world. That's they right. Were, <laughs> that's they drove right. everyone around them crazy, right? <laughs> that's right. That's
1: right. And that's
0: what the prophets do in the yep. in the Bible. That's yep. the model. Yep. Um, so, and then right now at this moment in time in our culture. Um, we have this world which feels like it's been poisoned by giving so much attention to strident voices, Mm -hmm. only strident voices on every side of any issue. So how can you, uh, do do you struggle to champion the prophetic voice? Uh, Or, you know, how do you, how do you define that over against uh, righteous indignation, yep. right? Or, or stridency that, that, is, that is really, that is toxic. Yeah. Because well, it may not look so different, you know right. what I'm that's saying? Right. <laughs> I, I,
1: I would, uh, you know, I wouldn't choose to use the word strident for myself, but I, it, it is deliberate on my part when I get to talk to clergy that I do a lot of uh, to, um, to do what I do as boldly as I can to try to model and energize preachers to be bold about what they do, uh, but I think it is uh, the courage that comes from the conviction that you've been entrusted with something important. Uh, and I, if you if you do it that way, rather than it being a self-announcement. The the, 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 the the accent is on the message and not the messenger uh, it doesn't need to be uh, strident in an alienating kind of okay, way so that's
0: one way to make a distinction that's right uh-huh. that, that, that what, what,
1: what one would wish is that it is emancipatory for people who are hearing you rather than affrontive but it is a very delicate line
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, um, I I no doubt cross over that sometimes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Who do you think of? Uh, did you think of people who you imagine as prophets among us today?
1: Well, a uh, king, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, Bishop okay. Tutu. I, re- I read a, mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: a biography of him, and I had no idea how long he had been courageous before he became Bishop Tutu. Right, <laughs> right.
0: And I guess maybe in the, it's in the nature of this that you don't recognize a prophet in, I think that's right. It, it's,
1: it's kind of in retrospect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I think uh, Coffin, Berrigan, uh, those are the names that would come first to my mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, but I, I, I think if the, if the prophets of the Old Testament really were uncredentialed people without pedigrees, uh, then we ought not to expect people to arise primarily in the institutional church
0: right or even maybe be famous people that's correct yeah
1: yeah and i think there are a lot of people who are not broadly famous Mm -hmm. who in their own local circumstance uh do transformative things are
0: those those good life-giving disruptive forces that's exactly right
1: Uh
0: (laughs) um you said somewhere in another interview uh I'm always a little bit careful about quoting other interviews because they don't always get written down correctly. But I I, I wanted to ask you about this because it was very intriguing that some of these issues, sexual issues, that are so galvanizing and so polarizing in our time, in churches and outside them. You said that you really don't think that's about particularities of guilt or sin, but about a sense of impending chaos. Yes. Which kind of goes back to that first prophetic text you read. That's right, yeah. So are you saying that people have a sense of impending chaos, and for some reason, maybe because these things are so intimate, this is what they latch on to?
1: That's exactly what I think. I've I've asked myself, why in the church does the question of gays and lesbians have such adrenaline? And I've decided uh, for myself... Uh, that that means most of what we're arguing about with gays and lesbians has nothing to do with gays and lesbians. It is, rather, that the world is not the way we thought it was going to be. You know, there have always been gays and lesbians, but we'd have to acknowledge them. And uh, you you um, can't—it's not fashionable anymore to protest pushy blacks— it's not fashionable to protest pushy women. You know those mm-hmm. those battles are lost <laughs> or won. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can still have great moral indignation around gays and lesbians. And so I think what has happened is that we've taken all of our anxiety uh, about the, the old world disappearing, and we've dumped it all on that issue. Mm. Uh, and, and so I have concluded that it's almost futile to have the theological argument about gays and lesbians anymore because that's not what the argument's about. I see. Uh, it, is a, it is an amorphous anxiety uh, that we are in free fall as a society. And I, I think we kind of are in free fall as a society, but I don't think it has anything to do with gays and lesbians, okay. particularly. Mm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting. What kind of church do you belong to? Do you well, do you-
1: I, I am, uh, I am um, a member and have ordination standing in the United Church of Christ. I now worship at an Episcopal church, mm-hmm. uh, and um, that's largely because the liturgy of the Episcopal church has become very meaningful to me, and uh, uh, so I find that a, a good uh, home to be in. But I have all kinds of uh, uh, deep attachments to the United Church of
0: Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess what I'm also getting at is, you know, what is a what does a healthy church look like to you? What is what what is? I mean, churches are institutions, right? Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. They're all. None of them are perfect. They're That's right. They're run by human yeah. beings. So they have all, but, yeah. <laughs> but given that. Um, you know what? What what draws you to a church now in this?
1: Well, I would think for for myself, it's um, it's um, thoughtful preaching, missional energy, and uh, a relative honesty about a spectrum of opinion uh, that is taken seriously in the church. I don't I don't want to belong to a church that is homogeneous. Uh, in which everybody thinks like I do, though I'd be glad if a majority thought like I did. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but it's a it's a it's a gathering of people uh, who are using their best resources uh, to try to follow Jesus, uh, and I don't think there's one way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so a lot of what churches do. Uh, local congregations is a matter of indifference to me at my age and all of that. Uh, but those are kind of the indispensables of that. And um, I have been led to a church that uh, that fulfills those uh, those practices uh, in ways that are very significant to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You know, another one of those words that it recurs a lot in your writing that comes also from the text is... Um, another word that we don't have in our culture very often is mercy you know, mm-hmm. we talk about forgiveness we talk about reconciliation yep. mercy to me is something different something bigger And yep. tell me about uh, that
1: uh, um, you, you may know that the, that the uh, Hebrew word for uh, Phyllis Tribble has taught us that the Hebrew word for mercy is the word for womb mm-hmm. with different vowel points Uh, And so mercy, she suggested, is womb-like mother love. And it is the capacity of the mother to totally give oneself over to the need and reality and identity of the child. And uh, mutatis mutandis then, uh, mercy is the capacity Uh, to give oneself away for the sake of the neighborhood. Now, none of us do that completely, Mm -hmm. uh, but it makes a difference if, if the quality of social transactions have to do with the willingness to give oneself away for the sake of the other rather than the need to always be drawing all of the resources Uh, to myself for my own well-being. So it is this this kind of generous connectedness to others. And then I think our task is to see how that translates into policy. Hmm. Uh, And now we're having huge political storms about whether our policies uh, ought to reflect that kind of generosity uh, to people other than us and, and people to, uh, who are not as well off as we are or uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that a, that a community or a society finally cannot live um, without the quality of mercy. Uh, the, the problem for us is um, what, what will initiate that, what will, what will break the pattern of self-preoccupation enough to notice that the others are out there and that we are attached to them
0: right it's that attachment yeah. isn't it
1: yeah right
0: oh um, um, I also think about uh, I think in Arabic that word merciful is also connected to womb it's the same well it wouldn't surprise it would be the me same if, if it, right yeah yeah um, uh, you know what it, it it takes me back to a conversation I had with a scientist who's like, psych- a clinical psychologist who's studying forgiveness and revenge and how forgiveness is made more possible and I mean, I mean studying what happens in the brain right mm-hmm. and that biologically we become able to care in larger and larger, wider and wider circles when we see others well being as linked to our own yes. and of course the mother the womb and the, the, the maternal love is, the, is an ultimate expression of that
1: that's right, because the whole womb process is a terrible inconvenience, <laughs> <I> <laughs> but, but, but it's an inconvenience. I know that better than you do. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you do, but, yeah. but it's an inconvenience that finally is defining for our life, mm-hmm. as the mother
0: mm-hmm.
1: lives into. Mm-hmm. Exactly, right. Mm-hmm. We sang a hymn this morning, uh, something about g- God is the umbilical connection, to us. So I thought it was very interesting mm. to get that language mm. into a new hymn. Mm. So. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's great.
0: You want to change tapes? Okay. This is, I'm having a good time. I hope you yeah, are too. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we'll let them change tapes. We'll just talk 10 or 15 more minutes. Okay. okay. That's fine. Yeah. Good. But we we can't talk about anything, sir. Do, are you, do you know Ellen Davis well?
1: Uh, no, real well, but uh-huh. I know her as a yeah. colleague. She
0: was my uh, professor of old testament at yeah. Yale.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Her and new has book. remained a good friend. Her new book is just extraordinary. I
0: know, it's terrific.
1: Yeah, right. All the research she did from the science side of that mm-hmm. and agriculture. I know. Yeah.
0: Well, just... and I, I, I didn't realize that. that's, you know, the way she described it to me. She, I was in her introduction to the Old Testament class, which was the first time she taught that. Mm. And she did tell me recently that it was in that process that she realized that she was tripping over the word land every other paragraph. All the time. Right. Yep, and that yep. it, was, it was in that that, that, that she then... Went deeper and deeper into that, and yeah. got involved with all these yeah. interesting land stewardship, and right. taking it. So I had many that directions. experience
1: when I started reading Wendell Berry. When, when he worked with her. Right. It was the word "place" that keeps coming up in his novels mm. all the time, like mm. that. So, mm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. yeah.
0: Um, I'd love to talk about um, your image of God. Um. And I want you to talk about that more personally, but I I thought I might start uh, with, uh, you know, for for example, in one of your sermons, you are talking about some poetry, Isaiah, and you talk about that that it offers five images for God. This is just one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) one passage in Isaiah a demolition squad. A safe place for poor people who have no other safe place. The giver of the biggest dinner party you ever heard of. A powerful sea monster he will swallow up death forever. A gentle nursemaid who will wipe away every tear from all faces. How are uh, normal people, not biblical scholars, how are they to make sense of a text like that? Of a God, of who God is.
1: Well, they're going to make sense of it if they had good preachers and teachers (laughs) to help them pause long enough to take in the imagery. Mm -hmm. But you see, what, what the church does with its creeds and its doctrinal tradition, it flattens out all the images and metaphors to make it fit into a nice little formulation, and then it's deathly. So, we have to communicate to people if you want a God that is healthier than that, you're going to have to take time to sit with these images and relish them and let them become a part of your uh, prayer life and your vocabulary and your conceptual frame. Otherwise, you're just going to be left with these uh, dead formulations. Mm. Uh, which again is, is why is why the the poetry is so important right. because the poetry just keeps opening and opening and opening, whereas the doctrinal practice of the church is always to close and close and close until you are left with nothing that has any transformative power mm. uh, and i, I think I, I, th- I think I probably learned this from uh, Sally McFaig that, that the biblical defense against idolatry is plural metaphors. Mm. And, and if, you, if you reduce the metaphors too much, you will end with an idol. Mm. So more metaphors gives more access to God, and uh, one can work one metaphor a while, but you can't treat that as though that's the last word, and mm. you've got to move and have another and another. That's what I think. Yeah. Mm. And it's just, it just amazing. in uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, there are just endless metaphors. Yeah.
0: It is, it's, it's such a, an important and um, kind of a disruptive point in a good way, right? Because dwelling with the images, again, is very different from memorizing Bible verses.
1: That's right. right?
0: Which is what I grew up yeah being taught to do. Um, and it's even different from reading the Bible.
1: That's right. That's right. I I, th- I happen to think memorizing Bible verses is a good thing, <laughs> because then you have the you mm-hmm. have the text available that can yield this stuff. Mm-hmm. But but unless you unless you understand that the verses you've memorized want to keep exploding and disrupting, you don't really have much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think that's exactly right, because what a metaphor or an image does is to invite you to keep walking around it and looking at it another way and noticing something else. It's a gift that keeps on giving, <laughs> okay. a- and uh, most of our handling of the Bible is not understood that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I asked you this way, um, in terms of your image of God, you know— are there metaphors that have spoken to you across time or that speak to you now that, that, that you know that, that didn't before are there are there metaphors that have come to you in, all, in your life as a human being and in your study as a scholar and your work as a preacher to be more and more meaningful
1: Well I think they arise, they basically arise out of my continuing to look at the text and uh, depends on what text I'm looking at. Obviously, mm-hmm. that is then related to what's going on in my life uh, that day. Um, but 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 if you, uh, for example, if I take the phrase, and I, I can't even remember where it is, uh, but let me be the apple of your eye. That's a very strange phrase. <laughs> right. But what that pictures is a, 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 a God who's a big eye that looks at you Caringly and treasuring you. So what I imagine from that, it's like being a little kid that's lost in an apartment store, and you finally go around the corner, and there's your mother looking at you, <laughs> and you're safe again. You're right. So I want to have God look at me that way. Now, I, I don't want to construct a whole theology out of that phrase, but that's enough for that day, mm. and uh, I'll find uh, I'll, I'll be given another phrase another day like that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how my mind works. Um, it, does, it doesn't yield a doctrinal package, uh, it just yields a bunch of fragments uh, that are not easily fit together. But the reason that works for me. Uh, is that I am aware that that I, as a person with identity, I am essentially a collection of fragments that do not fit very well together. So that's okay.
0: Hmm. The other thing about poetic language and imagery is that it has a capacity to change as you change and grow as you grow. That's right. Or, or, I mean, not that it does, but, you know, so that you can read it one year and read it 20 years later and there will be compl- there will be something there that you didn't see before. That's right. It's kind of That's what right. you're saying that speaks to you. That's right. Then.
1: That's right. And the challenge for a preacher is when a preacher gets up to talk in the congregation are people who are at all different kinds of levels of awareness and right. development and you have to try to talk so that people can get in on it where they are which is uh Really hard to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: I don't, You know. I would even say. I think we have that experience with this program. You know, because in a real conversation, a lot happens. You go to different places. Yep. You you tell stories. You formulate conclusions. You throw out questions. Yep. Maybe there's some reading, poetry, or text, yep. Yep. or music. And I think we find, and it's always so interesting for me to see. How different react listeners react to different mm-hmm. parts of the conversation, right. and it, it's it's a similar process.
1: Yep. yep. And and of course that's what a preacher gets every Sunday right. after church. You get you, you get preachers get attacked for what they didn't say. They get thanked for <laughs> what they didn't say
0: uh-huh.
1: because so much of it is in the hearing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right.
0: Um, I did I did want to read this to you. This was um. This was from a sermon. I just want to read it because I thought it was beautiful. That he wrote that God is the map whereby we locate the setting of our life, that God is the water in which we launch our life raft, that God is the real thing from which and toward which we receive our being and identify ourselves. It follows that the kind of God at work in your life will determine the shape and quality and risk at the center of your existence it matters who God is. Hmm. I'm glad I said (laughs) that. (laughs) But, you know, again, even just following on all of this, there's, because of the very complex and, and, as you say, poetic way in which God finds expression in the text, mm, there's a way in which God gets to evolve with us, right, through life. Right.
1: Yep. That's right. So, so, so god as a god brought to speech is a very supple reality uh, in which uh, we we exercise great freedom in whom god is now permitted to be among us mm. i learned that when my uh, son was uh, about 7 And at our table prayers, before I caught on to the the gender problem of language, I always addressed God as Father. And uh, that night I thought I would be Jewish, and I addressed God as King of the universe. And I I remember my son had his head bowed, and he came up with eyes as big as saucers, because he had never heard God said Mm. that way. Well... In retrospect, it wasn't much of a move from father to king, but you could make more moves the mm-hmm. same way. So that so that every time you find another way of saying it, the reality of God is opened uh, very differently, and and that's what they did. You know? mm-hmm. And of course, Jesus' parables then work that
0: right. very much
1: the same way. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: Very interesting. I would love for you just to read a little bit more, a psalm that you love right now. I don't know, something, maybe a couple of readings that mean something to you for whatever reason.
1: Okay. Um, Part of um, Psalm 146. Uh, happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous, the Lord watches over the stranger, he upholds the orphan and the widow. And then he adds this, but the way of the wicked he will bring to ruin. (laughs) The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord.
0: What does that say to you?
1: Well, it contrasts, the, 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 the verses that I didn't read contrasts people who trust in God with princes who trust in themselves. And then this is a recital of who you're trusting in if you trust God, and it's the God who sustains the world, who looks after the vulnerable, and uh, and who makes the world a livable place. Hmm. And then that that last line, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin, mm-hmm. I take it are, are, are when we act... To make the world not a livable place. Those are the wicked. And uh, they don't have any future. That's what I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, <that's laughs> and then uh, I'll do one other. Okay. I, I just uh, this, the, the, the book of Psalms ends with these sort of outrageous doxologies.
0: Okay.
1: Um, uh, but this is uh, praise the Lord from the earth you sea monsters and all deeps, fire, hail, snow, frost, stormy wind, filling his command, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and cedars, wild animals and cattle, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth, princes and all rulers, young men and women, all old and young together, and and it's an image of of all creatures joining in doxology, and I love that to think that sea monsters. I don't know the sea monsters <laughs> howl or what they how they express their faith, right. but it, but it's it's an early form of all creatures of our God and King. You know right. the whole world right. is coming in doxology and I just think it's so so wonderful. Yep. Mm-hmm. so hmm. okay. I just I just read a book recently, and I don't know whether it's right, but it says that Socrates said. That all true speech ends in doxology to God. I, I hope he said that. And If he didn't, he should have.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Walter Brueggemann, thank you so much. This has just been great.
1: Well, it's wonderful to be with you, and I, I love your program. So thank
0: you. <laughs> it makes Good. me really happy. Good. Is there anything that I didn't, that I might, that you'd like to talk about that we didn't? No. Okay. No, it was a great no. conversation. Good. Thank you. You're so good
1: at this. Of course, she's good <laughs> at it, isn't she?
0: <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Sure. This is all because um, the world has changed and radio is not just radio anymore. It has lights, sound, camera, action, <laughs> tweeting. Just a couple minutes of you kind of looking and listening while Krista talks. Oh, okay. All right. I'll do that. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It has, uh, you know, we live stream and people will watch this. And yep. the other thing that's been interesting is, um, you know, we, we really do put a lot of care into the art and craft of this. I'm sure you the, do. The art and craft of the yep. Radio Hour. But, recent, but a couple of years ago when Trent came on board, he had us start putting the entire unedited interview out because he said really? "Yeah, people want transparency as a virtue and yep, yep. Uh, you know it's amazing now how many people just go straight to the unedited <laughs> interview which almost <laughs> makes me think well why do we do all this work
1: short circuit all your artistry <laughs> just send
0: it out in the world Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. amazing yeah, but, but it's both and I think a lot of people listen to the edited show and then they yep. go back and listen it's that same yep. thing about taking digesting yep. right yep. working right. with uh, uh,
1: of all your programs, and I, and I don't hear it every week, but I thought the one you did with Pelican—oh,
0: I knew you were going to say that—so yeah. extraordinary. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, right.
0: I'm so glad we did that, and yeah, uh, I think we'll still be able to put it on the air every once in a while. And oh, I, I, I love think being so. able to kind of keep him alive. You know, what's interesting about that show on Creeds, because if you remember, we that's that had been his that great project that he yes, worked of on. I can't tell you how many Unitarians tell me that was their favorite show. <laughs> really, it's just yep. again and again. Yep, yep. Uh,
1: Isn't that interesting?
0: It's really interesting.
1: I've I, I tried to think of the name of the physicist whom he said he was in a chorus with.
0: Oh, um, it was Stephen Jay Gould. It wasn't. That, he right. was. Was he a biologist? Paleon, he? Okay. Paleontologist. Yeah, he,
1: he said about if you could send something r- to another as, world, yeah, it would be box corral, I think mm-hmm. is what he said, or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, you you just you know the the extraordinary people you bring to us is just uh nothing like it
0: oh, so, thank you yeah. we do our best yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. i gotta tell you one of my favorite things lately is um i interviewed um martin reese who's a, who's an astrophysicist and he just won the templeton prize i just love this uh so he studies like extreme phenomena in the universe um, black holes, mm-hmm. the whether there was one Big Bang or multiple Big Bangs, multiverses. And he said, and he's, he's, how old is he? He's in his late 70s, right? I mean, he's lived a while, he's been doing this a long time. He said, um, uh, but the most extreme phenomena, the most complex phenomena in the universe that we know of are ourselves, human beings. So he said, I can tell you definitively true things about the constitution of stars, but you know that you shouldn't believe anyone who tells you they know something that's definitively true about dieting or childcare.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. It's fabulous. I
0: find it so strangely comforting. Yeah, Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, somehow you're... Doxology and the sea monsters—it yeah, all yeah, fits together.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's I right. Like that's that. right.
0: to <laughs> put that on the air. I don't know when we're going to put this conversation with you on the air because we're kind of moving towards where we take a summer break. So it may be in the fall or in right. the winter, but we yeah. will have this, yep. and we'll let you know. It good. won't disappear, but I, it's it's going to be after the summer, I think. Fine, good. Might even good. save it for Christmas or something like that.
1: So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a it's a great privilege to. Get to be with you, well, so uh, I thank you. Big privilege for me, yeah, too. I've yeah,
0: known yeah. about you a lot longer yeah. than you've known about me. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Good. Yeah. Do, you have, do we have a car back for you?
1: Uh, he said he was going to be waiting out there, I think. So, uh, yeah. It's not, all calling you now. Okay. okay. Good. It's
0: been a long day. Are you going back to the... No, you're going home now, right?
1: I just got to go back to the hotel and pick stuff okay. up. If I'd a thought, I should have had the brought my stuff oh. with me and go to the airport yeah. but I didn't think, okay. so that's all right. Put Well thank you. Good. Appreciate it. Good Thank you for what you do. Thank you. thank all of you for making this work. Yeah, that's great. Put well thank you good appreciate it good thank you for what you do thank you thank all of you for making this work yeah that's great